Welcome to another episode of the Pocket Mastermind podcast. Uh, my guest today is the author of Honest to Greatness, uh, an Inc. 5000 entrepreneur, TEDx speaker, and business coach who works with organizations to, in his words, help them overcome self-limiting bullshit and use radical honesty uh, to achieve massive success. So here to talk to us all about honesty and uh, how that links to our success, Peter Kozadoy, welcome to the Pocket Mastermind podcast. It's great to be here, David. And you nailed my last name. You got it right, which is not always the case. So nice job. Uh, when I when I when I have people like yourself with a name that's not not usual, I look to see <laughs> how you pronounce it on on, yeah, on the on smart. this magical world of the uh, internet these days. So, yeah, thank you. So um, before we get into uh, the new book uh, mm -hmm. and all of the nitty gritty, let's learn a bit about Peter because sure. I've been reading up on your background and it's pretty interesting. And I bet, I bet that most people wouldn't guess what you grew up doing. Well, let, yeah, let me uh, give you the backstory, which is uh, I trained very hard and had Olympic aspirations as a figure skater, as a kid. Um, in fact, David, at 17, I knew two things to be true. The first was I was going to, the, going to the Olympics as a figure skater. It was my lifelong dream. Started at three years old, trained hours a day, off ice, on ice, the whole nine yards. And the other how thing you, I knew was you, that... Sorry to how did you yeah. get into figure skating in the first place at such a young you age? You know what? Did your parents skate. Bless my parents. Yeah, my mother put me into everything. Skating, right. skiing, theater, like you name it, we did it. Uh, and it was fantastic. You know, great way to kind of try everything out. And the reason I stuck with figure skating is because it was so brutally difficult. Mm -hmm. It was literally the hardest thing out of all of them. And I'm not one to back away from a challenge. Um, and to this day, uh, let me tell you, after you fall on your ass in front of 2000 people alone on the cold, wet ice wearing tights, nothing is difficult. <laughs> like nothing is hard after that. So it's a great foundation. Yeah, I think based on that, all kids should have to do it. Yeah, no kidding, yeah. So yeah, when did you, so you were, you were, your dream was Olympic aspirations. It was, yeah. And uh, the other thing I was sure would happen when I was 17 is that I would go to Harvard. I grew up outside of Boston, had several family members go. There was only one college, that was Harvard. Didn't, you know, didn't really even give a second thought to it. Um, by 18, it was clear that I was not going to make the Olympics. I wasn't good enough. I couldn't hold my nerves together when it really counted. And uh, I applied to Harvard. Harvard sent me a letter back saying, thank you, but no thank you. Um, and so for the first time ever, I had to sort of grapple with this idea that I was on this track that I was convinced was the truth, right? Mm -hmm. That's where I was going. And all of a sudden now I'm completely derailed and going off in another direction. It turns out, David, that that massive failure, which is, you know, what I've considered those for a long time is marvelous for the entrepreneurial journey because it put two giant chips on my shoulder, mm -hmm. um, which really helped me fuel growing my company from like the bottom of 2008 into a uh, multinational, you know, Inc 5000 marketing agency, um, which was fantastic. But it, you know, that was all well and good until the second crisis hit, um, which is that I turned 30. I don't, has this happened to you? This is just like terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how yeah. people survive this. I, I had a 30, 30 year crisis. I joined the gym at that point. And oh my gosh. My mortality yeah. hit me. <laughs> I don't know what it was about that age, but, but you know, I turned 30. First couple of months, I'm like, oh, this isn't that bad. And all of a sudden it sort of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I realized that ever since 
18, I had been accepting a second best Peter. I had just assumed, well, plan A didn't work, so I'm never going to be, you know, great in the way I would describe it. And I tend to be kind of an ambitious person. Mm -hmm. So I may as well just sort of accept a second best. And it was only after that age that I realized I had been denying myself the, the big dreams that, to be very honest, were always inside of me. Um, things like doing a TEDx talk. And so I went and did that. I always wanted to get an MBA, went to Columbia in New York to get an MBA. I always wanted to write a book, wrote a book, found an agent, got a publisher, the whole nine yards. And that's why I'm talking to you. Um, and so, you know, what's ironic is I was having my own crisis of honesty. I had failed to get honest with myself, you know, about who I was and what I really wanted out of life. Meanwhile, we had gotten very good on the communications and marketing side, helping organizations be honest with themselves you know, about where they were, what needed to change, what their customers were really saying, what their frontline employees knew to be true. Mm -hmm. So of course, you know, I'm sitting there in, in my own hypocritical bullshit. Um, it, it was definitely an awakening, um, but it spawned, you know, what I realized was once you're willing to get honest um, on the levels I talk about in my book, you can much more easily and much more rapidly move towards what you're trying to achieve. And the thing that holds people back is that they are lying on some level, either about what's going on in the world, what's going on with the others around them, or what's going on with themselves. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, one thing I picked up on there was you could have easily not gone down uh, a successful route, albeit you saying, you know, I'm accepting a second best type um, approach to yourself. However, after those two disappointments, still going ahead and building a successful business, um, not everyone gets up from those kind of defeats and knockdowns. So have you kind of analyzed and, and understood what it was in you that allowed you to keep going? Do you think that was built from the, the figure skating days or is it just a, is it a family type trait kind of that go, go, go type A style? Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question. And I don't know the answer to that. You know, folks have asked me, you know, being a figure skater, did your parents put a lot of pressure on you to, and no, not really. They mm -hmm. really didn't. You know, I've, nobody is harder on me than I am harder on me. Trust me. Um, you know, I've always wanted to, if I'm looking at a mountain, I want to get to the top of that mountain and I want to see the other mountains that you can see from the top of that one. And then I see another one. I want to climb that one. <laughs> it's just how I am. Um, so, you know, I didn't just want to publish, a, you know, write a book. I wanted to write a book and get it published, you know, like by a publisher legit. And I didn't want to just do that. I, I wanted a forward writer who was a New York times bestseller. So Sharon Lecter co-wrote rich dad, poor dad, uh, I was able to get her to write my forward. Fantastic nice. woman. And then I was like, oh, I want to be endorsed by someone on Shark Tank. So <laughs> figured out how to get Barbara Corcoran to endorse the book. Like, so, you know, I, I get these like ideas, like what, what does the pinnacle look like? And then, you know, I sort of wiggle around in the sand, try to get myself there as, as best as possible. And, you know, like I said, I, I sort of, I had lost a little bit of that. Maybe it's mojo, you know, mm -hmm. as I was building that company. And by the way, you know, as you said, like, you know, by 30, I had built a million dollar company. You know, uh, I had just gotten married to my amazing wife. We were moving into a house or we were flipping. Like life looked kind of good, but mm -hmm. happiness doesn't work in linear ways, right? Sometimes True. when we get to places we think will make us happy, we're like, oh, but there's, there's all this other stuff. And, mm -hmm. and that's where it takes brutal honesty, looking inward, saying, you know, who, who am I really? When I, when I look to myself, you know, I know I'm an author, David. I can tell you up and like, I am an author. I would have told you that before I wrote a book, right? Just it's in me, you know? So did you, feel that, did you feel that back at school? Uh, yeah. Oh, something yeah. You I always liked writing. 
Yeah, yeah I always loved writing. I've written a lot for Inc. and Forbes and a bunch of other uh, spots. And yeah, I just it's just one of those things that like I think folks get into trouble when they deny themselves who they really are and what they really want. And they sort of drift, you know, been there, right? Um, and I think, you know, for perhaps for a lot of folks that's resonating. And so what I want everyone to understand is there are two questions to snap yourself out of that state. The first is, is that true? And how do I know? So imagine you ask, you, you say to yourself like, well, I could never be, you know, such and such or never achieve that. I, I need all these other things or I need time or I need a different whatever. Is that true? How do you know? As soon as we begin to get honest about our assumptions, our biases, our ego, our self-limiting beliefs, only then can we start to realize that we put ourselves in the box. You know, it's like the, the bees in a jar, right? We put bees in a jar and put the cap on, leave it for an hour, come back, take the cap off. Those bees won't fly away because they've been trained, right? They mm -hmm. train themselves. So this is my zone. We do that as humans. Of course, we have no jar around us. We constructed ourselves. And so working with, you know, startups to fortune 500s and, and even Warren Buffett himself, I, I've become fascinated with how executive teams put themselves in a jar, you know, of their own making yeah. and then get stuck, unable to innovate, unable to dominate. And, and the root of that, David, really is getting honest on the levels that I talk about in my book. And that's, I was going to ask you really, how did you, <clears throat> you know, actually hone in on that, that, that honesty is being, the thing because you know, there's lots of noise isn't there and it's kind of like, well how do you how do you kind of cut through all that crap and then say actually this is this is where we're falling short well the good thing about writing a book about honesty is that i get to be brutally honest so mm -hmm. uh i never set out to write about speak about or frankly even care about honesty it is a shock to me i was the guy in high school voted most likely to continue being a jerk right like for me to talk <laughs> about honesty and openness and like willing to admit fault and this is a surprise even to me um, and so what happened is I, I wrote a marketing book and I wrote a marketing book because I was frustrated by the different clients we had over the years, some of which would take our strategies, which were always taken from the frontline employees and from their customers directly. Like, this is what they're saying. And some of these clients of ours would take those strategies and just crush it, you know, get a five, mm -hmm. six times ROI and they're spent with us. They stuck with us for years. Everyone's happy. Others would just blow up on the launch pad. They could not get out of their own way. It was just politics and infighting and bias and ego and bullshit. And I was like, this is crazy. These people are mm -hmm. stupid. How did they get there? And of course, no executive who has risen to that point is stupid. That was my own stupidity, right? What I actually came to learn, to understand was that they were being dishonest, you know, mm -hmm. either about what was going on in the world around them and how trends were shifting, what the others around them were thinking, feeling, and saying, you know, these are fellow executives, frontline staff, um, customers, of course. And then finally, they were failing to get honest with themselves you know, with their own biases and ego and self-limiting beliefs that were limiting the organization. They just couldn't see it. And so uh, I submit the manuscript to my, my agent. My agent signs me, right? Uh, and I, he was like, great. Oh, by the way, Peter, you know, th this isn't a book about marketing. It's a book about uh, honesty. And I was like, well, I picked the one agent who couldn't read because clearly if you just read the cover, it says nothing but honesty. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Um, and so, you know, of course I, I took it back and was flipping through it. And I was like, damn, he's absolutely right. This is much bigger than just how we communicate market and sell. This is about how we construct our entire lives, our leadership style, our ability to create massive change in our lives where otherwise we might get stuck. It transcends management, culture, 
you know, finance. I mean, I literally have chapters illustrating how honesty pervades each one of those things and tell the stories of incredible companies that used honesty, not as a touchy feely core value, but as a business strategy, you know, companies like the Ritz Carlton, Domino's Pizza, Bridgewater Associates, Quicken Loans, literally used honesty as a tool to dominate their competitors and earn way more profits than the rest of their peers. It's crazy because we learned it at four years old, but honesty yeah. really does work. Yeah, and I've you know one person I've heard you talk about, and who I'm also particularly interested in is Ray Dalio, yeah. and his radical honesty and how Bridgewater's been built. That success has been uh, among many a book you know this thick as on principles, but one of the core ones being the radical radical honesty, and it's it's interesting how many organisations don't have that at the core of core of their operation. And they do not. No, maybe it's for anyone who hasn't heard the story of uh, Bridgewater, and I've heard you tell it very well from the, the 1982 warning that never, <laughs> never happened. That's right. yeah. um, maybe share that, because and, and, I think that's a great lesson for uh, anyone listening who wants to get a tangible idea of what you're talking about here. Yeah, happy to. And, and Ray was kind enough to give me an interview for the book, and there's a whole chapter about you know what does that culture work because. We, we grow, grow up in a society pretty much worldwide that values kindness over truth. And of course, when you're trying to achieve outcomes, you can imagine that can get in the way of actually getting to what's true and moving forward. And, and one of these great examples was in Ray's you know, early career, he was about my age actually, when uh, he made this prediction that the economy would collapse in the early 80s. And he you know, positioned himself for it and told the world about it on TV and no collapse happened. <laughs> and uh, he almost went out of business. I mean, he had to borrow like a, a couple thousand dollars from his dad just to like keep his young family alive. This is a guy now worth over $17 billion. Mm -hmm. So what he learned was, gee, it doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong. It matters that we get to the right or wrong solution, right? I don't need credit. This is, by the way, very similar to Quicken Loans has a rule around this. It's not about who is right. It's about what is right. And Ray decided the only thing that matters is that I do not put myself in a position to be this wrong again. Mm. <laughs> so what did he do? He surrounded himself with really smart people that he deemed to be even more, you know, even more intelligent than he was. And he said, you will be honest with me and each other at all times. So we never miss something while we're pursuing kindness or ego instead of what's actually true. Now, as I say that, right, and people think about it, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Except do we run? our companies this way? Do we even run our families this way? Or personally? No, most, most of us are terrified no. of the truth. Right. So, you know, and, and, but you can imagine how, you know, literally with billions of dollars on the line, who would you want to give your money to? Wouldn't yep. you want to know that the person is pursuing what's true rather than like, oh, this is what I kind of think or mm -hmm. feel. This is what I feel like, right? As soon as people are like, you know what, this is how I feel. I'm like, well, nobody cares how you feel except you. Okay. And if you want to wallow in feelings, that's totally fine. But we have a, I have a conflict resolution framework I call facts and feelings, which is this. If you're having any sort of issue with someone, right, you get together and you go over facts and then feelings in that order mm -hmm. and independently. Because if you can write down the facts, you know, fact, uh, I sent you an email and you didn't respond. Okay. Well, the feeling to that could be, you know, you pissed me off, right? But let's just get the facts right first before we attach anything to it. Because 
we, you know, mere humans, we love to put events and emotions together. Yes. And so you look at the, the coronavirus pandemic, right? You know, I, I'm an entrepreneur. I coach a lot of entrepreneurs. And the natural thing is to be like, oh my gosh, this is a pandemic. Uh, I feel terrible about it. And my company is going to die and all this stuff. Well, there are two things happening. There's a pandemic. That's true. Is your company going to die? Do you feel terrible about it? Do you like, those are all choices. Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, if we're going to be, if we're going to use honesty to achieve outcomes, we need to begin to peel back that emotional, you know, reptilian part of our brain that so often in a reactive state gets us into trouble and divides us and just step back, take a deep breath, say, what's true here? You know, <laughs> is that true? How do I know? You see a headline on TV about grim milestone. Is that true? How do I know? My Aunt Betty's post on Facebook. Is that true? How do I know? You know, this is just a basic way for us to step back and begin to use honesty as a tool to be better, more informed, more open-minded human beings. And how do we, how do organizations start to adopt it, right? Because it, does it start top down, bottom up? Yeah, some great idea. Oath or, yeah, you know. It's a great question. Um, and David, it really does, as you, as you're mentioning, it really does depend on where you are. Mm -hmm. If you're at the top of an organization, you can just say, uh, Hey, turns out, uh, I was a lying sack of shit in ways that I didn't realize. And our company has hypocrisy here and there and everywhere. And we need to be much better at this. We are going to institute honesty. I have an entire workbook, uh, attached to the book that shows you how to do that. And I do, I run workshops for CEOs to help them do this. Um, it's much it's not, I'm going to say, I'm not going to say it's easier from the top down, but it's more simple. Um, and the reason I, I, I don't, I don't want to use the word easier is because there are people in every organization that can't handle the truth that will not operate that way. You know, every year at Bridgewater, 25% of their people leave. They can't take it. Okay. So a lot of times organizations that want to become uh, as effective as a Quicken Loans or a Domino's Pizza or a Ritz Carlton, they're going to need to change a lot of people. I think for the better, you know, mm -hmm. but that is going to take change. And also, as a, a, a leader of a big company or a small company, you can't say we're all going to be more honest and then let your biases and ego creep back in because now you're even worse off than before when you were just pretending. Yeah. Right? So you really have to be- You put yourself in the foot at that point. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you're going to do it, you got to do it. And by the way, when you do it, as I show in my book, you will dominate. I mean, it's incredibly effective. Now, if you're a frontline employee or a middle manager, by the way, Frontline employees always know what's really going on. Mm -hmm. They know the truth often far more than the executives. You take a Domino's pizza, right? Who has less in common with Domino's target market? This is like a 20-year-old that orders Domino's pizza three times a week because they can't afford anything else. Who has less in common with that person than the executive who makes 20 million a year and lives in a 10,000 square foot mansion? Yeah, they exactly. couldn't be more dissimilar, right? So, and and so this is why I say, like in most companies, the frontline employees who interface with the customers, most often they have the answers. So the problem is, as a frontline employee, you just can't walk into the CEO's office and be like, "Hey, dummy, uh, here are all the insights that we have. You, I need to shake you and make you like that's not going to happen." Okay, but what can happen is a couple tools I talk about in the book. The first is don't go it alone. You know, form a coalition, one person with some crazy hair-brained ideas is easy to ignore. 10 people across different departments, all working together to unearth what's true is very effective and much harder to ignore. Okay, so assemble a coalition. Second, use data. Executives have this wonderful and terrifying trait about herd mentality. 
they, they, they say the following, how do we lead our industry and dominate it? Oh, I know. Let's look at what our competitors are doing. And Follow do everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, hello, ridiculous. I can't tell yeah. you how many times literally I've had that conversation. And these are in like $3 million companies and $100 million companies, right? Oh yeah, let's, oh, well, what are they doing? Yeah, but I want to be a leader. What are they doing? doesn't make any sense. Very dishonest way of thinking, right? However, if you're a frontline employee or middle manager, you can actually use that to your advantage. I call it selling downhill, you know, feeding into the psychology that's already there by bringing data about what other companies are doing. And I give you lots of case studies in the book to come and say, hey, here's how this organization did this. You know, look at their outcomes so we can do that. There's an entire organization I talk about in the book called Just Capital. They rank companies based on their honesty and transparency and ESG traits and so on and so forth. And by the way, all of those companies that rank highly on their scale outperform their peers by 8% return on equity. So not only does there more honesty and transparency and higher wages and all caring, caring about stakeholders, not only is that like just a good, nice thing to do, it makes them more money. That's the point of the book. This is not an ethics book. I went to, I got an MBA at Columbia. I'm a capitalist. This is, make, this is a making crap tons of money book. I want to be very clear about that. The way to do it, I am as surprised as anyone, David, to admit, is by using the, these honest strategies. So back to your original question, it does depend on where you are in an organization but you can absolutely use this no matter where you are. It makes complete sense to me because the number of organizations I've seen tripping over themselves and one theory I have is it's somewhere, it, it seems to be around the middle of the organization where the biggest challenge seems to sit, where you've That's got right. the middle managers who have uh, teams and responsibility for results, but senior level uh leaders about directly above them and there seems to be this fear of looking like they're not in control not responsible not not handling things and so what you see is an issue on the front line gets watered down diluted 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 until it gets to a decision maker who makes a decision based on the information that they have and by then they've hit the iceberg that's and right that's the challenge I, I've seen over and over and over again. Like the frontline guys are saying, hey, we've got this problem and I know how to fix it. And it gets so diluted that the people who actually can spend the money and fix the issue or do whatever it needs to to orientate the organization never really know until they're sunk or right. something, That's... the problem's got bigger. So how do we solve that? How do we give people that? It's confidence, isn't it? Somewhere. I don't know what's... what whether it's organizational or whether it's uh, from growing up, whatever it is, but there's, we need to give the tools to that middle area to feel, have the confidence to, hey, we've got an issue, but here's the solution type approach. Yep, and you raise a lot of really great points about how honesty works, right? Honesty is not about adding stuff. It's an act of attrition. You know, if you look at an organization like a, like a diamond, right? You know how a diamond works, light comes in from the top, bounces around the bottom, comes back up, right? That's what makes it shine. Except when there are what? Flaws, oh, right? And this is what happens in the middle of organizations. They hit these gatekeepers, which should really be functioning as empowerment officers. Um, and in the businesses I profile, it's exactly what they are. There are managers who aren't busy justifying their jobs. They're literally sitting there waiting for someone to come in and say, hey, you know, we learned this new thing from a customer. It seems like a good idea. Uh, what do you think? And they, they sit back and say, oh, no, does that seem like a good idea? Yeah, that's about what we do. Okay, yeah. Why don't you go do it and uh, see what happens and report back? Right? Yeah. Now, 
Of course, managers are terrified to do that because it looks like they're not doing anything. But that's the new role that any manager or executive needs to take on. Listen and reflect. I call it the executive mirror. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to do everything. Just sit back and listen and reflect to the people below you who know what's going on. And by the way, not only can you sit back and do less, but also your people feel great because their ideas are being acted upon, right? They're not taking great ideas up to have someone shut them down and say, well, I'm not bringing you any more ideas. Like what a terrible cultural thing, right? Now imagine, David, if I introduce you to a company, and by the way, this is how Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. They have this, all these rules in place, like one I told you about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is say yes before no. You know, if it makes sense, they're going to say yes. When someone said, hey, why do we kill a tree every time we get a mortgage? Why can't we just do it on the phone? I mean, we all have a phone, right? Why don't we just do that? <laughs> Quicken was like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that would work, but why don't you go do it and uh, bring it back to us and see what it looks like. Simple, right? And because they did that, they, they crushed Wells Fargo, Bank of America, all these massive publicly traded mortgage providers, Quicken Loans rocketed to the top because they were willing to say yes before no. They weren't busy in all the crap that you were mm -hmm. pointing out happens. Um, and we see it over and over again. And a lot of what I do uh, coming into workshops of leaders is simply opening up those lines of communications like that diamond, you know, making sure that the flow is working and that people understand that there's a new way to manage. And it really isn't management at all. It's sort of coaching, guiding, asking good questions, saying yes before no, having rules, you know, having rules that we follow like Ray Dalio does to figure out what's true and then to move forward. Are there some kind of tangible uh, processes, good practices type, almost cookie cutter type things you can lift and shift and, and would, would provide reasonably quick pivoting of a, of a culture like that? Totally. So one of them is to create a culture code. You know, Quicken Loans has their isms. Uh, and it's, it literally is an operating manual for how employees should think, what, sh what they should value and how they should act. Brid Bridgewater has you know, principles. You read them, right? You yeah, know they have a Big them. old book, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, Domino's, I profile my own Columbia Business School. You know, they all have a common thing in place, which is they have an agreed upon way that they're going to act and they're going to hold themselves accountable to those rules. What's great about that is it takes away whim and ego and I think and I feel. It's no longer about that. It's like, well, these are the rules. We agreed to these rules. We're going to hold each other accountable to the rules. When somebody breaks the rules, it's the rules fault. You're not a bad human being. You just obviously don't fit the rules. So we're sorry. We got to let you go. Becomes very simple and black and white and clear. Not like, well, I like David. Mm -hmm. David's cool. So I'm going to keep him. And like not, all the politics dissolve. Okay. And nobody in this day and age with glassdoor.com and the ability for you and I to go work on our laptop in Bali, it, yeah. there's no room for all the typical corporate crap and the micromanagement. That's no way to have a recruiting you know, schedule to get the best talent in the world. It's not going to happen. You, know, you have to let people do their own thing, nurture them, guide them, ask them good questions, let them do their thing and be their own leaders. That is the way it's going, whether big companies like it or not. It's, it's almost like we're still operating a factory type mentality right we yep. got the frontline guys just go in and do your job do your job but you know peter drucker wrote about this donkeys years ago that the the knowledge worker is a completely different environment and you'd have thought in the 
however long it was, 40, 50 years ago since he wrote the effective executive, we might have evolved by now. Into, we haven't. But for some reason, we, we haven't. And what do, you, what, do you, what do you see being the evolution from this point on? Do you think that we'll start to see, um, particularly now we've you know, post-COVID, do you think you'll start to see these big organizations actually change in shape and size? I really do. Why they operate? I, I do because we, you know, you think about like 50 years ago, right? We didn't really know what it was like to go work inside of like IBM, mm-hmm. right? But we do now. We yeah. can go on social media and we can go find people that work for them and see what they're saying and go to glassdoor.com. We can look up the, you know, what they're doing for the environment and social issues and governance. And that, like, we just have so much more information now. And people behave differently in the dark than they do in the light. You know, the more information we have as consumers and employees, the more different choices we'll make about who we do business with and where we go work. And so I think we'll see a shift because companies have to shift if they want to keep up and attract the best talent and make sure they remain innovative and so on and so forth. I think in many ways we're forcing the hand and that's the whole premise of the book is that in a world where everyone has a smartphone, where everyone's recording something somewhere, there's no incentive anymore to do anything but be honest and transparent. But right now, there's still an opportunity for companies to be first, you know, to pursue these strategies now and, and still be the leaders rather than be forced to catch up in five, 10, however many years it takes. And one of, I guess one of the challenges we're up against, we live in this bizarre time where like politi- politicians globally are far from honest. Yeah, unfortunately. And that, yeah. that kind of then filters its way down like there's kids are watching that stuff and it's the normal way to behave right and you watch uh shows like the apprentice and it's like do each other over and not be honest about stuff mm-hmm. it's like how do we how do how, how are we going to push this forward is there, is there stuff that we can uh, implement at a school level that we could you know start to breed that honesty from a from an earlier age um rather trying to retrofit it onto everybody once, once they've got these bad habits ingrained well you know to your point about politicians and obviously you know we're in the middle of the pandemic this year we're in the middle of you know racial injustice gender bias and all these massive issues right we can see the outcome of leaders who are not honest we're living in it is this good like is this what good looks like i would argue not right Mm -hmm. so there are two avenues ahead of us Either we think that we will continue to go down the road of, I'm going to rent a Ferrari to make it look like I own it on Instagram, right? And we're just going to like lie to everybody about everything. Or we're all going to wake up and realize that, that the outcomes that are being produced by that aren't so good. And maybe we need to elect some different folks, follow different leaders, be more honest, right? I can't tell you with certainty which one it's going to be because we human beings love to cling to our emotions. <laughs> like I said earlier, we yeah. love to be led astray. We love herd mentality. We're wired for it, sadly. I can tell you, I hope it's the latter, you know, that we wake up and we realize that, hey, this isn't working. You know, and one of the things I did purposely, David, is write the book in case study format so that colleges, universities, ethics programs, business programs, entrepreneurship programs can make sure this book gets to people before they enter the workforce. So they can understand, oh, this is good, mm-hmm. right? We should do this from a morality standpoint, but also it can help me make a lot of money and succeed in life, right? Which to me, it needs both, right? Again, not an ethics book. It is a business outcomes book. 
Sounds really good. I'm I'm looking forward to uh, getting my hands on a coffee for sure. Um, I also look at your website and I see the 21 questions quiz. Tell us a bit about that. That's right. So, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was give people an easy way to understand, like, are they honest? Um, you know, it's funny when I started doing these interviews a couple of years ago, uh, some, I, I got one question, which is like, you know, do you think people are inherently uh, honest? And at the time I was like, yeah, I think so. Now that I've done research and work, been working in it, leading workshops, written the book about, no, people are not honest at all. Uh, on, and not intentionally. No, right? completely not intentionally. unintentionally, I'd imagine. Yeah. Completely unintentionally. You know, they just harbor all, these, all, all this crap, um, you know, these assumptions, these inherent lies. Do so, you think that's a defense mechanism? Um, yeah, I do. Yeah, in many ways I do. And actually, that, that's something Mark Manson has said too. He's the author of uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a... I love that book. Yeah. Word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he... Uh, I never know in these podcasts if I can like swear. You can, do, you can say whatever you like. All right, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, and that's one of the things he says. He's like, lying is a very useful defense mechanism. And I bet it was back when we lived in villages of mm -hmm. 50 people and that was our world you're going to get now, stoned to death for, for stealing yeah, the loaf of I mean? bread like, <laughs> yeah. right now we live in a, a world of uh, you know where we can reach millions of people with a smartphone i think we've carried a lot of that baggage mm. with us and again we see the damage that, that it wreaks right so uh so i did the quiz it's free 21 questions i'll tell you what honesty profile you are uh if you're you know honest enough to know um and you can get that at honest to greatness.com it's honest to greatness.com and uh and yeah and by all means share your result on social media if you tag me i'll uh, i'll pick it up and share it as well are you able to see any are there any patterns that you see come out of the the responses to that the data from that it's tough because i don't know who's being honest about their responses <laughs> i do make it a point at the beginning to say hey you know it is an honesty quiz be honest because it asks some things like you know when you watch the news how many sources are you looking at you know, when you are trusting your friends who have shared something with you, to what extent are you diving behind the data and the sources to understand like, oh, is that true? How do I know? Mm -hmm. Right back to our questions um, versus just taking it at face value. If we want to build a culture that gets to the truth, we need to take personal responsibility for that. You know, we need to be more honest with ourselves about like, am I just sharing, am I absorbing clickbait and then resharing it? that's not a very responsible way to be, right? Yeah. And yeah, it takes a little bit of work, folks, to be like, oh yeah, is this true? Maybe I should dive into this before sharing. Yeah, it takes work. Sorry, this is what our society needs. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to be you know, much more attuned to the fact that oftentimes we can be part of the problem when we don't get honest about what it is we're absorbing and reflecting back to our friends, family, and networks. I think we're probably we've got to a point now where we're probably nervous of being honest, particularly around, you know, friends and family peer group, that kind of thing, because everyone seems to get easily offended. Yeah. How do we, how do we start to become more honest with those that are close to us? So it's outside of a, because I think if we can start to become more honest with friends and family, by definition, that kind of makes its way into the, the workplace as well. But how do we do that without, offending people <laughs> totally yeah and one of the saddest things that i've watched this year you know let's talk about two things coronavirus and uh what's going on with racism in america yeah. right so in both cases folks have drawn up positions and then refused to accept anything from the other side mm -hmm. right so the 
you can imagine like in coronavirus, right, we've got people who think like this is a complete hoax and, and you know, I don't know why we're locking down. You've got people who, who want to like arrest anyone who doesn't wear a mask, right? Now, in that case, there's a lot of nebulous data out there. It is not clear what the statistics say. No. Experts have agreed that we don't even have an accurate capture of how many folks are infected out there to know what the denominator is. Like it is a disaster. We've got states running off in different directions. So in that case, it's actually pretty easy to instead of taking up a position to just like ask folks, Hey, I see you don't want to wear a mask. Can you tell me about that? You know, tell me what you're thinking, feeling, where, where are you getting your news? You know, help me understand that. Imagine if we just walked around with that attitude versus you're not wearing a mask. How dare you? And this, like, yeah. that's not the way to change people's minds, right? And come to common ground. That's more clear cut. Now let's, let's switch that to racism, right? Obviously no one likes what's going on with that. The death of George Floyd was horrible, by the way, brought to you by the transparency that that video had. That's yeah. why we were all able to rally around that, right? So chalk one up for honesty. The problem is, again, once you dismiss folks who have a certain view, you immediately alienate them and you prevent change from happening, right? There was this wonderful story I saw. Now, I've actually never told the story on a podcast about a former KKK member who ended up having an accident in the hospital and beside him in the hospital was a black gentleman. And of course they started out not talking, right? This guy was in the KKK. And this was not that long ago, by the way. This is probably like 20, 30 years ago, sadly, okay? Over time, because they're stuck alone together, recuperating, eventually they kind of nod to each other. Nods turn into, oh, good morning. And over time, what happened? They start to talk because they have no one else. And through talking, they realize the humanity there, right? Mm -hmm. And by they, I mean, I mean, this was primarily this KKK member who obviously needed to wake the hell up, you know? Yeah. And so he, through being with this human being, ends up changing his entire view on the world, leaving the KKK, starting his own mission to get members out of the KKK and realize how damaging their beliefs are. Okay. Amazing. That can't happen, David, unless there is a humanization of the problem. Yes. Unless you sit in a room together and you see that these are just people and that these positions are wild. Okay. However, if that guy, that the, the KKK member had been in his house, subjected to a picket line in front of his house for months at a time, he would have further entrenched yeah. into his position. He would have gotten more angry, more upset more locked into his own psychology. And, you know, when we talk about like, how do you be honest with friends and family? We have to be honest about what helps people change in the first place. It's usually not assaulting their beliefs, right? That this violates my, yeah. my whole selling down. Telling anybody they're wrong. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't, doesn't work. So, you know, what I really hope to see happen is we use honesty and we start to point to the honesty, you know, is the technique I use where it's like, Hey, are we sure? that this particular protest is really going to work. What else can we do to humanize this? Because only through humanizing the problem do we actually convince people to move off their positions and change. And that's what we need more than anything, change, right? Not more violence, not more protests, we need change. And so you can do this interpersonally with anyone by simply saying, um, I need to be honest with you. And by the way, I'm trusting you with the fact that I'm being honest, it's difficult for me to do this. I'm going to say things that are hard because I, I love you as a person, right? But 
I hope you respect that I'm being honest with you. Now, what happens when, you, when you're honest and you point to the honesty is it's very difficult for the other person to be like, well, screw you. I can't believe you would dare be honest with me, right? We don't do that. You know, we say, wow, okay. Um, all right, well, that was, that, you know, thank you for your honesty, right? That was refreshing. We have these phrases, refreshingly mm-hmm. honest, right? So we're wired, you know, just as- In itself is nuts, right? Refreshingly yeah, honest. <laughs> exactly. So, right, why do we have that? Why do we need exactly. that phrase, right? That's exactly. a problem in and of yeah. itself. But, um, you know, we, we have these innate psychological tendencies that we need to be honest about and then learn to capitalize on. And, and one of those things is, you know, pointing out that we're being honest. And oftentimes that can build a bridge and disarm people. And I think we need to do a much better job in this country and the world de-escalating the situation rather than, you know, more escalation. It just, it's just not helpful. Yeah, it's, 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 it's tough as I in particular, I think about people and their health and, you know, we've got issues with weight and, and, and all of that kind of stuff at the moment. And I, I see a, a reluctance to be honest with people and say, "Hey, you need to kind of you do well to change the way you're living, right? This isn't gonna this isn't gonna end well." But instead, what we tend to say, "Oh no, you you should be proud. You look you know look up, you, you look you look amazing and blah blah blah." Never mind the fact that these people are walking into type two diet type two diabetes hell and and all sorts of stuff, and we're we're actually doing people a disservice by not being honest in those kind of situations. And I agree. Yes. Uh, I, I just see it's, it's quite challenging to quite challenging to um, overcome for most people, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. And, but it is possible because we're not telling folks anything they don't already know. This is true. We've, what we've done is we've given them an excuse because we're not going to, they know we're, we, and that's family, friends, whatever mm-hmm. we, they know we are not going to be so direct that they need to confront it. So it's easy to just shelter in place, right? Yeah. There's no impetus to move off, you know, what you're doing when there's no opportunity to be locked in a room with what you perceived was the problem, then there's no opportunity to overcome it. Yeah. It's interesting when you um, you spoke about Mark Manson earlier and he said when he went to Russia and he was in the subtle art of not giving a fuck and he said he went to Russia and it was quite the brutal honesty when he first got there you know if you're a dick they call you a dick immediately and uh, oh yeah and it took a while of adjustment but what after being there for a few weeks he actually grew to really enjoy the freedom that it gave because it meant that you could express yourself openly and anybody else could express themselves openly and it's a, a completely different way of 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 approaching i think we see you know, people in Russia as being quite stern and miserable and <laughs> all the rest of it. But um, actually, they've got that that cuts cuts through all the crap. Well, and, you know, I, that's why I love uh, Israelis. Same thing, right? Yeah. They're so direct. And for me, you know, I write about honesty, so I love it. Um, but you raise another really good point, which is that, you know, we get it. We, we meet each other. Hey, David, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Are yeah. we really good? Probably not. Have we missed, you know, because we have these, these locked in, you know, emphasis on kindness and niceties and all that, have we missed an opportunity to really connect? Mm. Well, actually, David, I'm in the middle of publishing my book and I'm sad because I feel like I'm doing all of this work and it's like shouting in the dark and I'm not sure that folks out there are even listening. Well, now you know me a lot better. Now mm. we can have a conversation that might change my outlook, but we miss that opportunity when we pursue nice over honest. That's true. Food for thought. It is very true. I, I've said this, said this for quite some time. I always chuckled at the, the whole, "Hey, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good." And I think, well, 
if we we probably don't actually want the real answer is part of the problem right you ask the question and if if somebody did turn around and say well, actually my life's just fallen to pieces and blah 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 and you're left stood there going what do, what, what do i do with this <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> we're, we're not trained to deal with the truth that's the problem yeah yeah but that's part of what i want you know executive teams that i work with to you know question it's like is that what we want you know is that the culture we want is that how we best serve people i, I don't i don't think so so where can people get hold of the book yeah for sure so uh it's out august 11th of uh, 2020 um First week really matters. So if you're seeing this and it's, uh, you know, that first week hasn't expired, please go buy, uh, you know, one or a hundred or a thousand copies, whatever you, you know, if you want to read it multiple times, you can buy multiple copies. Um, <laughs> one for every page. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, available everywhere books are sold. You know, Amazon's, of course, the, the elephant in the room and the easiest one. If you're an entrepreneur, you run a business, head to petercosadoy.com slash bonus because on that page, uh, I have all kinds of bonuses available for folks who buy multiple copies. Uh, classes I've taught, entry into my monthly forum group for entrepreneurs, which is life-changing. Um, I even have a package where I'll fly you and a friend to Manhattan, put you up in a luxury hotel, and uh, take you out to a steak dinner once the zombie apocalypse has ended. So, yeah, those are all oh, there bloody on good, page. yeah. <laughs> Get in for that. So before we, uh, we part ways today, I'm going to give you the quick fire round and get your take on a few things sounds good so question one do you have a morning routine of any sort and if you do what does it look like yeah i don't rush myself out of bed unless i absolutely have to nice that's, that's made a difference in my in my happiness level good like that uh three books that you'd recommend and why not the your book three times yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that no no um the obstacle is the way by ryan holiday nice um, that one that's good yeah. I think Mark's book, you know, the subtle art of not giving a, an F word is a good one. Yep. Um, I th you know, after the fifth page, you kind of get the gist, but you know, still, I think the idea is worth having. Like the right? audio book version of that's pretty good. It's, it's well narrated. It's funny. Oh, really? Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's I'd, I'd, I'd recommend it. Yeah. It's good. That's great. Good. Um, and then the third, uh, for any sci-fi fans out there is I'm rereading Isaac Asimov's foundation series that I read like twice as a kid. Apple, Apple is finally coming out with the series. And the reason why I recommend it is because it's such a foundational work, no pun intended. It's what Star Wars was based on, Star Trek, Game of Thrones, like all these epic stories we've come to love uh, in the 21st century. Asimov wrote, you know, 70 years ago or whatever. And just his foresight is incredible he's also a columbia guy so I'm, I'm biased but i didn't know that until after i read uh, read the series um but it's just, I, I i i love going back to the beginnings of like you know what what what's the etymology of some of the mm -hmm. things we've we've taken for granted in our culture you know where did they start and that's that's one of those uh one of those starts yeah that's interesting i i like i like that it's interesting because there's so much stuff now there's a lot of regurgitation from older stuff from the early part of the 20th century in particular um and late kind of 1800s i suppose there's a lot of stuff a lot of good thinking came out around that time period and it's just been repackaged for the 21st century is uh, i see over and over again so i'd recommend uh people checking out some of the older stuff in it in all genres to be honest mm -hmm. um three people that you follow or listen to uh that you'd recommend me check out I mean, I think everyone should be familiar with Warren Buffett and read his shareholder letters. 
Um, his methodology is much simpler than I think a lot of people realize. Yeah. You know, they think like, oh, he's some genius. Like he's actually a very simple person with a simple methodology who does very little and has done very little in terms of action. Like he reads and he waits and he thinks and he does something. Patience. <laughs> and then patience 10 years later, he doesn't get it. Yeah, patience. Right, so. been handed, his and Charlie's uh, yeah. greatest asset, I think. Yeah, and so and then the second was going to be Charlie Munger. You know, he he has a, a book out that's wonderful too. The name's escaping me; it's over on my shelf. I think those are two guys that everyone should be familiar with because to understand their philosophy is to understand the markets, and to understand the markets is to understand how the world works. Everything runs through a business. You know, the laptops we're on, the microphones we have, the debt like our whole lives are are one big business. So I think it's imperative that that folks realize that. Um, yeah, I don't really have a strong third. You know, I'm not a big like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm like a, I'm not a big fan kind of person. Mm-hmm. Like I don't idolize people all that well. Maybe that's a fault of mine, but you know, they put their pants on good. like everyone else. So <laughs> I, I, think that's good. Just, I think maybe, uh, maybe Ray Dalio could probably fit into that list somewhere on the line. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's got some smart things to say. Uh, uh, three good habits or disciplines that you've adopted over the years that have helped you in life, business, whatever. Yeah. I think the number one, maybe numbers two and three is just systems thinking, you know, everything I do, like literally everything, David, from my task list on my email to doing dishes, I think about in terms of a system, what is the most efficient way to get this task done? Can I delegate it? Do I have to do it at all? You know, what is this important and urgent to what I'm really trying to do? And I'm always looking at my activities through that lens. And it's remarkable to me. And I coach a lot of entrepreneurs now, uh, helping them build their own million dollar business. It's remarkable to me how much stuff they're doing Mm -hmm. that has absolutely zero meaning or bearing on what their real ultimate goal is. Most of what I do is tell people to stop. Like, why are you doing that? Well, because I need this to do that. Is that true? How do you know? <laughs> and so often they're, they're like, oh gosh, how come I was doing that? And I was like, you tell me, but you were doing it for two hours a day. So now let's figure out how to use those two hours a day a little better, right? Um, so yeah, people get, get lost. So systems thinking is something I've always thought about in my life. And you know, how do I turn this into a system? Even if it's something I do once a year, it's like, how do I make a system out of that? So I don't even have to do it once a year. You know? And so you can imagine, um, and James Clear wrote a great book called, um, uh, atomic habits. Yeah, yeah. It talks about like too, when you yeah. ap- improve on your life, on your systems, on your business, just one percent a day, that adds up. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'd say that that probably occupies my my top three. That's helped me be have the success that I have. Resonates with me. I've I I live my life with those kind of systems approach as well. And then when I read James Clear's book, I thought bloody hell, this <laughs> this is what I've been doing. You kind of it's habit stacking, right? You yeah, kind of exactly. you find ways of efficiently incorporating other things uh tasks within existing tasks and then if you can outsource all of it altogether even better that's right uh on that note kind of similar three tools or systems or apps or what something along those lines that you you now use that you couldn't live without um i mean i run everything on g suite I have Gmail, I have Google Tasks, which I just learned about like six months ago, which is phenomenal because it's right next to my, my Gmail. So mm-hmm. I'll literally pull emails. If it's a to-do item, I make it a task and then that email's gone. 
and I rearrange those tasks twice a day, only twice a day. And I just run the list. I don't think, you know, I just run the list because I already did the thinking, right? So saves time. Um, and just being able to like edit doc documents on my phone you know, is fantastic across sheets and Google Docs and the whole thing. Folks that are still operating and, and like, oh, am I using like Microsoft here and Gmail there and that like, I don't know how they do it because it just saves me so much time and being able to be on the road. Um, I'd say that's the big one. And then of course, you know, I, my companies luckily were going virtual before coronavirus. Um, that's luck. I did not like foresee it coming. I'm not that smart. Um, but I do encourage everyone to think about like, how do you, how do you build a virtual ecosystem around yourself? You know, and that's, how do you integrate Zoom so you're not going and scrambling for a room or pulling a link? Mm -hmm. How do you integrate Calendly so you never have to book a meeting again? Like all these tools are out there. It, it behooves someone to sit down on a Saturday morning and just say like, how do I build a virtual ecosystem around me with these tools so that I can be much faster and more productive? I like that. It's good. And the bonus question, this is the last one. Uh, if you could spend one hour with anybody, dead or alive, who would that person be? Probably George Washington. Hmm. Interesting. Why? Because I, th I have a feeling that George and, and perhaps some of the other founding fathers would be very disappointed if they were able to come back and see what the United States has become. And I'd be curious about, you know, is that true? <laughs> yeah, that's and, true. Um, yeah. And in, in what ways? You know, where did they think this was going and, and where did it end up? And, and what would they do to fix it? You know, I would be really fascinated to know that because I have a feeling their vision has gone a little sideways, sadly, but I don't, I don't know if that's true and I don't know exactly how. I think you're potentially right. But again, we don't know if you, if it's true. Um, but yeah, that's a really interesting answer. I like that. Mm -hmm. uh, before we go then, so just remind everybody where they can find you. Sure. So uh, come have an honest conversation. You can find me at honest2greatness.com. That's T-O. Um, and again, books available everywhere books are sold. Uh, the great thing about reading a book about honesty is you get to tell me if you honestly liked it or not. So uh, either way, leave an Amazon review. Those really help. And uh, I do hope you enjoy it and come have an honest conversation. I'm on all the social channels at Peter Cosadoy. Lovely. Cheers, Peter. It's been great. Thanks so much. Speak soon. Cheers.